Welcome to Hospitality and Politics. I am your host, Andrew Ridgey, and this show is powered by the New York City Hospitality Alliance. Today, my guest is Allison Page. Allison is the co-founder and chief product officer of Seven Rooms, a data-driven guest experience platform focused on enabling hospitality operators to increase revenue by leveraging data to build direct relationships, deliver exceptional experiences, and increase repeat visits and orders. Today, we're going to discuss restaurant technology, the impact of COVID on both the restaurant and tech sectors, and I'm sure we'll chat about a lot more. If you like the show, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave a review, share on social media. We are at the NYC Alliance on Twitter and Instagram, on Facebook, LinkedIn, and New York City Hospitality Alliance, and I am on Twitter at Andrew Ridgey and Political Foodie on Instagram. Big thanks to all of our members for supporting the show, and welcome to Allison. Thanks it's for having so, me. Of course, it's so good to see you. Before we just started chatting, we were uh, talking about how it's difficult for the past, I can't believe, seven months or so, because you don't actually get to see people, or you just see them on Zoom. So it's nice to see you on Zoom, even though we're just recording audio. Mm-hmm. Um So anyway, so talk to me about what's going on in the world. I feel like so many of the conversations that I have these days are like, you know, how people are pivoting their companies. So I guess just tell me, you know, what was Seven Rooms pre-pandemic? And is the company a different company today? And if so, how? Yeah, sure. So before the pandemic started, you know, we kind of became known for this direct model in on-premise dining, right? So it was very simple formula uh, that we had for helping operators build better relationships with their guests and and ultimately, you know, make more profit, right? And our model was, let's give tools to operators that help them collect more data about their guests. Uh, Then let's give them tools to help them use that data in service to really personalize the customer experience. And then once those guests leave, how can we use the data to remarket to those guests in a more profitable way, get those guests to come back? Um, and so that core model that we have remains unchanged today. I think the biggest difference, though, is that we figured out how to apply that model to off-premise as well, um, where, you know, I don't have to tell you the, the struggles that restaurants are having with, you know, third-party uh, delivery platforms. But essentially, we're able to use that same model um, to help uh, restaurants take direct orders now instead of direct reservations. Um, build that combined profile on-premise and off-premise to help operators really have a full understanding of who their guest is. Um, And then, you know, from having both of those data sets, uh, we have a really valuable way to be able to reach out to customers, to cross-sell to customers, to move customers between the on-premise and off-premise channel. So I think like the core of what we do, uh, why we started the business, how we do it hasn't changed. Um, But I think the way in which that we can help operators today has certainly expanded as we've moved off-premise as well. No, that makes sense. So, you know, one of the things that we had spoken about and was always a big topic of conversation pre-pandemic was, you know, how are restaurants using customer data and analytics and is it actionable? Um, And, you know, sometimes people would talk about kind of data overload. It's great to have all this information about your guests and all this other, you know, points. But if you don't actually know how to turn it into actionable actions, it just kind of creates a lot of noise and can be a little bit distracting. Um, 
But how have you seen restaurants, if at all, kind of use data perhaps that they collected before the pandemic to say, okay, let's try to make sense of this and then use it in a way that can help us connect with our guests um, during the pandemic when they weren't even able to sit inside the dining room or even kind of pre-outdoor dining? Yeah, no, I think it's a great question. And, you know, people always say, like, there's so much data in restaurants today, right? They have more data than ever. And while that's true, uh, there's, a, there's a couple issues. One is, like you mentioned, restaurants don't necessarily know how to use the data. So they have the data in 10 different systems. They would have to hire a data analyst to kind of piece it all together and figure out what to do with it. Um, restaurants certainly aren't in the position to be hiring data analysts today, right? Um, and then on the other side of the spectrum, uh, there is a lot of restaurant data, but the restaurant doesn't really own it. They don't really have access to it. Uh, so there's nothing that they can really do with it uh, in those situations either. Um, you know, the way we help our customers uh, use data is in a variety of different ways. So just to give you some examples, pre-pandemic, um, we would have, you know, small restaurants that they would sit down before service and they would comb through seven rooms profiles to talk about, you know, who's coming into the restaurant tonight which of our regulars are coming back in? Are there any special occasions? Are there any special preferences that we need to accommodate tonight? Um, it would really be a meeting about like, how do we knock service out of the park, right? Um, and that's something that, you know, we, we see a lot with, um, you know, like smaller operators, but it's things like that, that we try to bring to a big operator as well. Like, so we try to help a big operator uh, be able to do that personalization at scale by making it so easy to get access to the data. So I think like with, with COVID, um, it was kind of a wake-up call for operators in a lot of ways because now all of a sudden your business may have changed, right? You may have different opening hours, right? You might now be doing delivery and you weren't doing delivery before. Your whole menu might have changed uh, to accommodate a delivery model. There's, there's so many things that you need to get in front of your customer and a lot of restaurants realize they don't really have a way to get in front of their customer. You know, maybe they just have this like stale list in MailChimp of a hundred email addresses that they've collected in the last five years. It's really not enough um, to really cultivate that customer base and, and bring them along with you on this journey as you're trying to, you know, pivot, make changes, you're trying to survive uh, the current challenges. And so I think that, you know, a lot of operators, you know, woke up and said, you know, this is a problem. I have no way to communicate with my guests. I have no way to market to them. I have no way to get them back into the restaurant uh, when we're, when we need them the most, right? So I think certainly like the need for guest data has become more apparent than, than ever before, even though, you know, we've seen industries around us over the years evolve with guest data or with customer data, um, whether it's like retail or entertainment or travel, um, and so I think that it's a very much needed change uh, to come to hospitality. So, you know, you mentioned data and ownership of data. I mean, this has been something that we've been fighting over because there are certain platforms that basically do not give ownership of customer data to the restaurant. Um, and often they can use that as leverage to keep the uh, restaurant on their platform. So do you have any like philosophical beliefs about customer data, who should own it, how you should have access to it? Because that, I mean, impacts obviously the restaurant industry, but I think that conversation is also part of a much larger conversation about customer data or just user data in general. So how do you with Seven Rooms, you know, approach 
data that's collected by you and the restaurants. Um, but then also just kind of overarching your thought about ownership of data and analytics um, as a whole. Yeah, sure. So uh, with Seven Rooms, the restaurant owns all of their data. Um, that is a big differentiator for us. Um, we want the restaurant to build a direct relationship with their customer. We want them to understand who their customer is uh, because we feel like that's what really results in the best customer experience. Now, you have all these third parties that their job is to put a wall in between the restaurant and the diner. They have to do that. Otherwise, they won't exist, right? If they pass um, ownership of the customer over to the restaurant, you know, then the restaurant can build that direct relationship. The restaurant can remarket to the guests and that guest you know, won't need that platform anymore. Um, you know, we've seen this story before. Um, I'm sure you're familiar with like the OT mo- OTA model um, in hotels and airlines. This is very different though, because, you know, in the air- airline industry, for instance, we have a handful of like giant brands that actually have like the power to fight back against OTAs. Um, you know, they have security regulations that require them to get the customer data from like a kayak or for, from wherever people are booking. We don't really have that in restaurants. The, the industry is very fragmented. We have like thousands and thousands of really small players um, that really don't have the power to fight back against these third parties. Right. And so that's why it's so important that, you know, we teach restaurants that if you need to use a third party channel, you know, that can be part of your strategy, but it can't be the whole strategy because you need a strategy for collecting your own customer data, for building your own customer base, for having a way to profitably remarket to your customer. That's just like table stakes today. Um, And so it's very, very dangerous for restaurants that, you know, they are totally fine with sitting back and putting all their inventory on OpenTable, on Resi, on Grubhub, on Uber Eats. Uh, that is a very, very dangerous place to play because you are essentially outsourcing your entire customer experience to a third party. Um, and you're never going to get a hold of any of that data. You're never going to be able to remarket to those guests. So, you know, like I always say, you know, use those channels where you really need the help. Um, but it, it just cannot be the whole, whole strategy. It's, it's, it's too dangerous for the restaurant. Yeah. And I think, you know, some of these tech companies, they're also in this tough position, right? Because the restaurant is their client, but then the customer that's ordering the food is also their client. So they're trying in theory to provide the best experience for, you know, two different customers, so to speak. And sometimes the two can be at odds. And like you said, at the end of the day, that third party company wants to keep their business model. And if they turn over too much information, they become somewhat irrelevant, perhaps. So what have you done? Because I know Seven Rooms, um, we had spoken early on when COVID hit, and you were making some moves into the delivery space. So can you just give me an update of what you've been doing there and what you've learned as a company as it relates to delivery? Yeah, yeah. So I could talk about delivery a little bit, but just um, you know, on, on the data piece real quick. Um, I, I think that the part of the problem is that these third parties aren't completely transparent with how they're using the data and the data that they're acquiring. So like from a philosophical perspective, I think, you know, it, there could be a world where it's okay for a third party to be taking data from the restaurant, but the restaurant should be getting something in exchange for that, right? Um, and continuing to pay 30%, 40% over and over again on the, on the, 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 the loyal customer, the regular customer that's, that's always coming back to that restaurant, it doesn't really make sense. And so 
Um, you know, I get very upset when I see, you know, big tech companies doing things that restaurants just aren't really aware of. They don't read the fine prints. They don't have an understanding of like what's happening with their data. And just to give you a few examples of that, you know, uh, Travis Plant Planet from Cloud Kitchens. He has um, a delivery aggregator called Otter, right? It's very similar to if you're familiar with like Chowley, it's a checkmate. Um, and it aggregates all the delivery orders for the restaurant so they don't have to have like five different tablets. That is great. But if you read the five fine print, they make it very clear that they are going to steal all the data from the restaurant. And guess what? Cloud Kitchens is going to use that data to compete with the restaurant, to know who the customer is that's ordering from this restaurant. What are they ordering? That What are they ordering? Giving them all the data they need to pop up a ghost kitchen and essentially replace that restaurant, right? Um, so that, that's one very clear-cut example. Same thing with OpenTable, for instance. Um, OpenTable offers a free POS integration. Guess what? It's not free. If you go into your OpenTable member profile, you can see very clearly that OpenTable is telling your, their diners, hey, we're going to use all of your point-of-sale information to be able to retarget you, right? So now OpenTable has access to who are all the VIPs, the high spenders at these restaurants. Now I can remarket to them. I know what they order uh, to move them to the restaurant across the street, to send business across the street, right? So those are just two examples of how, you know, I think restaurants are very short-sighted and saying like, oh, this is free or, oh, let me sign up for this because, you know, I'm immediately going to get orders in the door. And they're not really thinking about the long-term consequences of, you know, not having ownership over that data. Um, and so I think, you know, we need to do more education there to help operators really understand what are the consequences of, of playing that game, essentially. So, sorry, I, I can pause. But no, I can no, 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 that's perfect. I mean, honestly, I, I've thought and written about this when it comes to ghost kitchens, for instance. I mean, I understand the allure of them. I understand why they can be helpful to restaurants. I was speaking with someone yesterday who's uptown. They want to have a ghost kitchen uh, downtown because they've never been able to deliver down there. We just started kind of going through the motions about the conversation. And there really is a huge threat of vertical integration, especially if they're going to own uh, the customer data. And then they have obviously the money, their investors, and you see it in tech all the time, give them the ability to continue to operate at a loss, to acquire customer data, to acquire everything under the sun in the hopes of one day, you know, becoming profitable and just implementing new stages within the delivery uh, system, you know, so like what would stop a cloud kitchen from then saying, you know what, I'm going to do group ordering for all the restaurants that are in our ghost kitchens. And then you have a delivery platform so they control that. What happens if, uh, you know, they want to start um, creating their own virtual restaurants that compete directly with the restaurants that were in the uh, ghost kitchen previously. There's nothing stopping them from that. And what my concern is, if you kind of fast forward this and you see what happens down the road, they basically, they being the ghost kitchen, you know, can own the platform where the customer is placing the order, the platform for where the restaurants are ordering their product. Uh, and, they can even hire staff and you see it right now. You don't even need to bring your restaurant staff into the ghost kitchen. We have people that wash the dishes. We have people that cook the meals. So they're basically taking complete ownership 
of the restaurant brand, and then they have their claws in you, and restaurants cannot afford to leave the ghost kitchen because then they lose access to this huge customer base and the ghost kitchen can put their own virtual restaurant that competes with them in there or take one of their competitors. Um, so I do think it is like you were saying, um, a slippery slope and not to say that there shouldn't be ghost kitchens and stuff of that nature. I think it's inevitable, but I do think that restaurateurs need to go into it with their eyes open. And like you said, know what they're signing, know what all the conditions are. And my concern, particularly during a pandemic, when people are in crisis mode, they're losing their businesses, they're exhausting their personal savings, they may enter into agreements that seem good at first, but what are the long-term implications, particularly once we get on the other side of this pandemic? Do you own that guest you know, data, um, and how do you have control over, you know, your, your, your general operations. So, sorry, now I jumped in and totally <laughs> went on a rant. So I don't even know what I asked you before. No, I, I totally agree. We we're going to, we were going to talk about delivery, but I think this is a good, this is a good segue, yeah. you know, with the proliferation of those kitchens and these delivery platforms, um, you know, what you start to see is that brands are just like one of the thousands, right? Like they don't really stand out. And if you think about why operators got into the business in the first place, it's because the hospitality operators want to provide general, genuine hospitality. They want to provide that experience. They want to have a connection with their customers, right? And when you're operating out of a ghost kitchen, right, you essentially just become the cook for that ghost kitchen brand, right? Or if you're on a delivery platform, you're essentially just like, you know, three stars in Williamsburg has hamburgers, right? You kind of lose that entire, you know, reason that you got into the business in the first place. So I think, you know, our approach to delivery is really helping restaurants stand out, right? Have a presence outside these third-party delivery platforms where you can really cultivate what your brand is. You can really form a connection with the customer. You can understand who the customer is by being able to have access to the data. You know, it's absurd to me that there's, Places that I order from, you know, they don't have a direct ordering uh, methodology because obviously I would always, always use that first. Um, But, you know, if I have to order on a third-party platform because there's no other way to get it, and I might order from this place 10 times that's around the block, they have no idea who I am. They don't know that I live right down the street, um, that, you know, I've been keeping this restaurant, helping keep them going during COVID, right? Making sure I order from them constantly because I love it. Um, and I think it would be really valuable for restaurants to, to have that data and understand, you know, who the customer is. And we saw the, the space looks very similar to when we entered reservations, right? It was kind of in a place where, you know, restaurateurs didn't know who was sitting in their dining room. They had no idea what these people were ordering, what they were spending, who their most valuable guests are. There was no connectivity across locations. Um, and we see a very similar thing in delivery, uh, which is something that, you know, we're experts at solving. Um, so, you know, like I said before, I don't think that we've changed our model at all. I think just the, you know, the uh, move into off-premise has strengthened the value that we can provide, uh, especially during these times. Yeah, I think people really need to focus on their own channels. You know, when I walk past a restaurant, you see, you know, 12 different stickers in the window of different delivery companies. And I'm like, why are you directly promoting to your customers or potential customers channels that are going to take a huge fee off of each order. You know, you should really be directing as much as possible through your own channel where you own the customer. 
customer. And I think that's kind of at the core of what you're saying and doing with seven rooms is own that customer, know who they are, because then you can better cater to them and build loyalty and generate additional revenue, especially over the lifetime of that customer. Yeah. And never mind the stickers in the window. Like nothing gets me more upset than when I go to a restaurant's website and it's like order delivery and there's like a caviar button or like an Uber Eats button. I'm just like, oh my God, you are literally taking your customers that have come directly to your website and you're pushing them out to a third party where you're going to pay 30, 40%. Like you deserve to pay 30, 40% because that is so stupid. Um, (laughs) Like honestly. And so I think the other thing that a lot of restaurateurs don't don't understand is, you know, a, a delivery platform might give a restaurant a small discount to put that button on their website, right? Maybe like 2% discount on the fees that they're paying. Again, this is operators being short-sighted. That sounds great. Yeah, sure. Put the button on the website. Not only are you losing all the revenue, um, all that those potential commissions that you shouldn't be paying from those customers going directly to your website, you're also strengthening that third-party platform on Google, right? Because when your own website is saying, go to Caviar to, to put in your delivery order, that's telling Google search algorithm, Caviar is the right place for someone to go, somewhere, someone to go when they're searching for delivery at this restaurant. So, you know, they're, they're cannibalizing their organic orders on their website and they're cannibalizing their, you know, search ranking on Google as well. Um, both very, very dangerous games to play. Yeah. And I think that's been one of the tough places uh, that restaurateurs find themselves in, because if they don't have the knowledge about how the whole technology world works, they end up basically giving money to these other companies and doing things like you just described that end up hurting them, you know, definitely in the long, you know, the long term. And for most restaurateurs, I mean, there's no way they're going to be able to compete with the sophistication of these tech companies from, you know, building, you know, buying Google AdWords to everything else. I mean, I always say in the delivery space, what I see these companies doing is really trying to redirect consumer behavior to ensure that no matter where a customer goes to place an order for delivery, somehow it goes through their channel meaning they get a commission, they get the customer data and all the other benefits that, you know, come along with that. So, you know, so many of the conversations always I see feel like in the articles I read focus on what restaurants are doing wrong, you know, when it comes to customer data. But what have you seen from some of your seven room clients uh, in the restaurant space that are doing things right with customer data and particularly maybe when COVID hit, you know, that set back and said, all right, you know, let's look at our company. Let's look at how we're using customer data and that have implemented strategies that have really helped them. Are there any best practices or any case studies that you point to? Sure. So I I think like, you know, one of my favorite uh, case studies, uh, you know, you're a New York city guy. I'm sure you know, Maria, great Italian restaurant. So you know, they're a customer that, you know, if you would have asked me a year ago, uh, if Maria could have like a booming delivery business, I would have said like, no way. It's just like, you know, it's not their brand. Their, their food is like so fine dining. I don't even know how that would, that would make it home. Right. Um, and one of the things that happened uh, during COVID is because they had been using seven rooms for so long, uh, they had a giant database of their customers. They understood who their locals were that they can instantly reach out to and say, hey, 
we're in the delivery game now, like you can get Maria at home and they are just crushing delivery, crushing it. Um, and, and that was something that was really, really, uh, you know, surprising to me, but in, in a very good way. Um, but yeah, I mean, operators, small and large, like I think our bigger customers, you know, they use the data to forecast better, to understand staffing levels better, to understand, you know, the way that they should be order, ordering, the way that they should be order, organizing their, um, their dining room, right? Like, you know, if we replace this four top with two, two tops, we can grow revenue by this percentage, right? Um, but I think our smaller operators, you know, like I, like I said before, they're really the masters of using the data to create that personalized relationship, right? So to understand like, hey, Andrew has a gluten allergy, I'm going to have a basket of gluten-free bread sitting on the table when you walk in. Um, and I think that's really what's going to be needed uh, going forward in delivery and in, in on-premise is you need to use that data to really differentiate yourself because, you know, think about like Amazon, Right. Like, why would I walk into a store when I can get the exact same item on Amazon? So like, what are retailers doing to change that experience to, to get me to want to walk into their store, to get me to want to buy from their brand? They really have to differentiate what they're doing. Otherwise, there's just no point. Um, and I think the same thing is going to happen in restaurants. You know, if I just want a slice of pizza, I can just go on one of these platforms. I don't really care where it's coming from. Like, how is a restaurant going to make me care? Um, that I get pizza from this restaurant, from this restaurant tour, right? Um, so, and I and I do think that data is the path to help restaurants get to that point and, and be able to provide that differentiated service and experience. So that's interesting. So you know, kind of just thinking about it, you know, you meant like the gluten free bread or whatever it is, you know, um, that restaurants are doing to help cater to their customers and provide a unique guest experience. How have you seen some of your clients related to COVID? Obviously, safety, you know, and uh, ensuring that you're following all these different protocols are so important to giving customers a sense of comfort if they're going to go dine in at a restaurant, whether it's it's like in the dining room or doing outdoor dining. Have you seen your restaurants now using some of those same strategies to tailor the guest experience, but specifically for COVID? Yeah, for sure. So, you know, in, you know, a lot of our, our restaurants that, you know, never did wait lists, uh, were just like walk-in only, they kind of graduated to doing wait lists, right? And then some of our customers that did wait lists, like they're now taking reservations. So I think, um, you know, just in having comfort before you come into the restaurant, uh, so being able to join the wait list from your couch at home and like know exactly uh, when your table is going to be ready. So you don't have to be like waiting in, uh, you know, a, a waiting area or outside with a bunch of people. Um, I also think like I've seen them use our tools for a lot of messaging and communication. So like when you hit the waitlist page or the reservation page, the restaurant is letting you know, like, Hey, here's our like COVID protocols. Here's the, the safety that we're, that, that we're taking. Um, they're also, you know, doing things like, uh, separating their inventory into like patio seating and indoor seating and making sure that if people are only comfortable uh, seated on the patio, they should be able to book a table on the patio, right? So we've seen a lot of operators adopt that as well. Um, you know, I've seen operators put check boxes on their uh, booking flows to have uh, guests opt into a COVID policy themselves, saying like, we're requiring all guests to wear masks when they walk into the restaurant you know, check this box to like, let us know you're going to adhere to those policies. 
Um, and I think like it, it's been interesting the way that like, they very quickly changed to adopt new technology. Like we very quickly built a way to do contactless check-in, right? Allow guests to check in from their car in the parking lot, let the host stand know that they've arrived. Um, and so many of our operators overnight um, adopted that as like a new workflow for, for greeting and seating guests. Um, you know, also using QR codes uh, more effectively, putting a sticker in the window uh, that someone can scan and like order from the sidewalk or, you know, book a reservation or join the wait list without having to come into the restaurant. Um, so a, a lot of change has happened. I think that, you know, it's been pretty inspiring to see like how quickly um, a lot of operators kind of like pivoted bi business models to accommodate it. But, you know, ultimately, you know, guests are along a very wide spectrum of comfort levels. And so operators need to try a lot of things to find the formula that's going to work for their guests. Yeah, that's fun. And, you know, especially QR codes. I mean, I feel like that was something people weren't using. Like COVID's definitely accelerated the adoption of technology yeah. that people were trying to promote for so long. I mean, whether it's QR codes or mobile payments or any of these things that were happening, you know, but it was kind of advancing pretty slowly. All of a sudden COVID hit and it's like, bam, everyone has QR codes. So I'm curious to see how all of this will um continue as we hopefully sooner than later uh, move on from COVID and get back to some sort of normalcy. Yeah. Um, but so, you know, again, like restaurants every day having these conversations, they're trying to figure out what does the restaurant industry look like in a pre -pan a post pandemic world. I mean, I was even spoke speaking with one restaurateur who's building out a new restaurant just so you know timing has it and he was saying you know all banquettes now are going to be able to be moved around the restaurant nothing is going to be fixed in place he said i don't know maybe another pandemic hits or something happens and we have to do social distancing it's much easier for me to get more people in the seats and have them socially distant if i have the ability to move my tables and move the banquettes around i thought that was you know interesting hopefully you know, it's something he'll never have to worry about. But um, in your space, like in the restaurant technology space, what are you and your competitors like biggest challenges right now to keep up with the needs of the restaurant industry? I mean, is there anything that's like, oh, if we could just figure out how to do this, it would really help people? Yeah, so I think the challenges are are twofold. I think for like all tech companies right now, it's really like, you know, getting in front of operators when they're short staffed, um, you know, even to like implement a new system is, is challenging when you don't have the extra bodies on hand and you don't have like the time to do it. Um, that being said, though, that's also the opportunity, right? Because a lot of restaurants realize you know, what a, a time savings, what a cost savings, um, you know, even in terms of human capital, like I can, I, I can operate with less bodies if I implement tech. Um, so I think like, you know, actually getting rolled out at restaurants is a little bit more challenging now than it was mm -hmm. before. Um, but I also think like the rate of operators like wanting to adopt technology is like bananas compared to what it was before. I think like it's really pushed the industry forward and in understanding, you know, the, the needs that, that we have today. I think um, in terms of challenges, you know, like for seven rooms specifically, you know, it's always been about education. Like we have been, you know, educating operators for years and years about the benefit of having a direct model with your guests. 
the benefit of owning your data, owning that relationship, being able to remarket to your guests in like a very cost-effective way. Um, and, you know, I, I'm, I'm happy that you have me on like a podcast like this. Um, but, you know, there's so many restaurants, there's so little time and, you know, just getting the message out there, like, hey, there is a path forward. You, you know, you don't have to be, you know, tied to these third parties and, and struggling the way that you are. You know, there is a better, there's a better model for doing this. So I think like, you know, getting the word out, talking to as many operators as possible and really showing them a vision for a more profitable future. Yeah, well, I can tell you, I always joke around. I say like my real job is a restaurant tour therapist because <laughs> I hear about everyone's problems, you know, all the time. But uh, I can honestly say, I don't think I've ever had anyone come to me and like complain about seven rooms since day one. I always hear from restaurant tours that are just like so thrilled with the product, but also like the team. And I think what you're talking about is communication and everyone's trying to figure out, you know, how to operate in this world and what comes next. And I think it's so important for companies like Seven Rooms and others that work with restaurants to figure out how to be in constant communication, because so often we need to make, you know, changes on the fly. It's like in a restaurant, you know, your kitchen's backed up, you know, you got to do something, you know, you really got to act in the moment. And I think especially when you're adopting technology and things are changing so quickly, you need to have partners in the space where you can say, listen, my business model is changing this way. You know, what do you suggest or how can you continue to build out your product to better help, you know, my restaurant, which leads me to, you did a big raise recently and uh, you know, you keep, entering new fields like the delivery model. What do you think uh, lies ahead for seven rooms over the next, you know, six months, 12 months, 18 months, as you continue to kind of grow the company and, uh, you know, adopt to the needs of the restaurant community? Yeah. And I think like adopting to the needs of the restaurant restaurant community is, you know, hitting the nail on the head. It's been really easy for us to do that because we are only operator facing, right? Like we don't have a consumer platform. So when you, you were mentioning before, you know, those platforms, they kind of have two customers, the restaurant uh, and the diner. We don't really have that challenge, right? Like a hundred percent of our focus, um, you know, is on the operator, how we can improve their business, how we can help them provide better customer experiences. Um, and that's what our funding is for, right? Like we want to bring that model to more operators, not just in the US, but we have a really big global presence as well. Um, and, you know, now is the time, you know, people are like, how the hell did you raise funding in, in COVID? Um, it's because our model makes more sense than ever now, you know, like restaurants really need to rethink the relationship that they have with their vendors, the relationship that they have uh, with their guests. And we're really well positioned to help them do that. Um, so I think like there's been a lot of, um, you know, like doom and gloom about the restaurant industry, like, oh, restaurants are going away and and all that stuff. And it's it's definitely not at the end of the restaurant industry, not by a long shot. Right. Restaurants are, are here to stay, um, you know, but I look at it more as like a new beginning. Um, you know, we've had to evolve during this crisis. Right. And we're going to continue to evolve. And the restaurants that choose to evolve, that choose to take on tech, that choose to change the, the way that they do business, they're going to come out much stronger from, from this. Right. And on top of that, there's probably going to be less competition 
for them uh, because there are going to be restaurants that that don't evolve and they're not going to survive. Right. So I think like for, for the restaurants that actually, you know, wise up um, and do the things that they need to do to be successful, like in COVID post COVID, what does this look like the next like two, three, five years? Um, I think that they're, you know, going to wind up crushing it uh, after this crisis is over. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. Oh, doom and gloom, it's everywhere. And it's such an incredibly difficult time right now. But like you said, the restaurant industry isn't going anywhere. Um, it's just human nature. People obviously need to eat, but they also want to socialize and they want to have an experience. And I think when we are on the other side of this, more than ever, people will be craving that human connection, the hospitality, going out and socializing over drinks and a great meal. And I think restaurants that are really able to kind of capitalize on that and even exceed customers' expectations um, are going to be successful. I keep saying it's how do we mitigate the damage because we are going to lose countless restaurants. So, you know, what kind of policies can be enacted to help save as many restaurants? But I'm hoping that on the other side, we'll also see like a new rebirth of the restaurant industry. You know, often it's like, you know, things get broken down, there's destruction, but then there's some sort of like creative rebirth. So hopefully uh, we will see that. And I'm, and I'm sure we will. So among all the doom and gloom, it's important to, you know, have some optimism. Um, so I often ask restaurateurs, you know, what is or who are other restaurateurs that really inspire you or impress you? Um, so I guess I'll flip it on its head a little bit for you in the tech world. When you're looking at different tech companies, it can be in the restaurant space, but it can be in other spaces that are somewhat related. Are there tech companies that inspire you that you think are doing a really good job other than Seven Rooms, of course? Yeah, I mean, there's a ton of companies that I follow. Um, I follow a lot of um, other industries, too. I like to look at what companies like Shopify are doing to help small businesses. Um, You know, I I think there's a lot of leaders in a lot of different spaces doing some really awesome things. Um, I think one company that really inspires me and, you know, this is not necessarily a tech company, um, but, you know, Nike is a company that I follow very closely. And a lot of people don't know this, but Um, Back in 2017, Nike changed their entire business model um, to go to a direct strategy. Um, Mm -hmm. They they created a direct department at Nike. They cut off relationships with third-party vendors who were basically, you know, parking on their brand for foot traffic. Um, You know, they invested in tech that helped them combine the online and offline data on their customers so they can understand who the customer is. They completely overhauled their digital experience to make people want to go to the Nike app, make people want to go to the Nike store, you know, provide things that are differentiated than what they would be, they get, would get going to like Foot Locker or something like that. Right. And there's like so many parallels between, you know, what they've done for retail um, to what restaurateurs should be doing um, to differentiate their experience, to own the direct relationship with their guests. So, you know, I love the story and like the proof is in the pudding. Look at look at Nike stock since 2017. It's almost tripled. Right. Um, And and, you know, people just talk about how this brand is like crushing it at a time that, you know, retail is having so many issues. So, um, you know, they're they're definitely one one to watch. But um, yeah, you know, I think that this has really given birth to like a lot of companies doing a lot of new things. We've seen like a lot of uh, creativity come in a time like this, especially from like restaurateurs. Like I've never been so inspired by, 
you know, the independent restaurant operators who like literally hustled and like created a new business model, like created a general store out of the front of the restaurant or, you know, put together an awesome outdoor seating area, like overnight. They like, you know, built it themselves. It is very inspiring. That entrepreneurial spirit, the creativity. And, you know, I always cited it's uh, the um, Winston Churchill quote, don't let a good crisis go to waste. And I think, you know, using this crisis as a time to really look at your business and figure out, you know, what were you doing wrong in the past? What should you be doing better? And basically, how can you just continue to adapt your business in ways to make sure that you come out of this in the long run, hopefully stronger um, than ever? But I love that you said Nike. One of my favorite books, uh, Phil Knight's uh, yep. founder of Nike, Shoe Dog, is so inspiring. You know, whether you're an entrepreneur or not, I think it's just like the human story and how you build brands and how you think of a company and how you think of a customer. Um, so what have you learned? Um, you know, how long is when, when did you found uh, Seven Rooms? Uh, so about nine years ago. So what is so? All right. So not, that's it. So we formed the hospitality alliance about eight years ago. Um, what have you learned as an entrepreneur over those past nine years that really, you know, you use on a day to day basis or that have, you know, kind of evolved your leadership skill set? Yeah, no, I think like don't waste a good crisis is a really good one. Um, You know, I just think like you need to when when your back is against the wall, right? Like when everything is going wrong, you know, there's opportunity there. Like every challenge is an opportunity um, and you're either going to roll over and and let it consume you or you're going to figure out how to be creative um, how to pivot, how to, you know, build, get to work. Um, that's why you are an entrepreneur, right? Cause you, you're a problem solver. So, you know, I think if anything, you know, we've learned how to, you know, you know, su- survive in, in the face of adversity. Right. Um, you know, we, we really, really figure out how to like hunker down and like, you know, take a look at what's going on around us and figure out like, what can we do? You know, we, we have the power in our own hands to impact the industry right now. Um, you know, what can we build that's really going to, you know, make the industry more successful. That's really going to be helpful to operators right now. So, yeah, I think, you know, every crisis is an opportunity is like certainly something that, that we live by. I hope we don't see too many more of them. Um, but you know, we'll, we'll definitely be ready for the next one if it should come. Yeah. And this, this is a massive crisis, but I feel like as a business owner, you know, pre pandemic, you face your own different crises almost every day. And it's really figuring how to, you know, kind of work through them, work around them and learn from those, you know, mistakes or learn from those challenges. So before I let you go, how is your co-founder and our friend, Joel? He's amazing. Um, he's recently engaged and he has oh. a beautiful little puppy named Mochi. Mochi. Oh my God. Very, very cute. I love Mochi. <laughs> um, uh, oh, and before you go, I have to tell you because I swear I've been meeting now probably for like a year and a half or two years to tell both of you this, but um, maybe it was two years ago. I did one of these round table dinners that I helped moderate with you. And, you know, we had a bunch of restaurateurs in the room talking about different technology issues. And one of the things that you gave out 
uh, Bianca gave was a seven rooms bag. Yeah. And my wife uses it to this day. Almost every day when we go out, she has this seven rooms bag. She throws all her stuff in it and uh, it's holding up. But she's like a walking uh, billboard. And I've been meaning to tell you it. So um, we may need another one because she I mean, it gets a lot of use, but it's still in good shape. Still in good shape. We, have, we do have seven rooms masks now. Really? Yes. All right. We, we, we may we may need some of those. Yeah. <laughs> well, listen, I really appreciate you coming on Hospitality and Politics. It's always good to see you, to talk to you. Keep up the great work. And let's talk really soon because we want to see what's going on in the Seven Rooms world. And I'm sure we'll hear from restaurateurs that use the product about how they're using it. But thanks again for all your insights. Thanks for coming on Hospitality and Politics. If you like the show, please follow us wherever you get your podcast. Follow us on social media. That's the New York City Hospitality Alliance or at the NYC Alliance. If you're on Twitter or on Instagram, and I am there at Andrew Ridgey. Thanks again to all of our listeners and supporters, and we will talk to you soon. I'd like to give a big thank you to our guests for coming in. I want to thank everyone for listening to Hospitality and Politics, powered by the New York City Hospitality Alliance. Please rate, review, share this show with anyone you think that would like it. You can find us on Instagram and on Twitter at the NYC Alliance. We're on Facebook and LinkedIn, New York City Hospitality Alliance. And I'm your host, Andrew Ridgey, and I'm at Twitter at Andrew Ridgey and Instagram, Political Foodie NYC. Join our movement, support the New York City Hospitality Alliance. Find us, the NYC Alliance.org. We'll talk to you next time.